The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. Patients in Wisconsin can't count on getting the care that they need when they need it. They can't trust that they will. And physicians can't trust that they're not going to end up behind bars for doing what they've been trained to do. Legal arguments and the challenge to Wisconsin's 1849 abortion ban begin in court. And racist comments from a UW-Madison student spark outrage nationwide. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Tonight, I'm here and now. A legal expert explains the lawsuit challenging abortion statutes on the books. Protests over a viral video with racist comments from a UW-Madison student. We hear more details behind the GOP shared revenue plan. And a look at the state's reliance on immigrant labor. It's Here and Now for May 5. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. A Dane County judge this week heard arguments whether to dismiss Attorney General Josh Call's lawsuit over Wisconsin's abortion statutes. A near total ban on abortions from 1849 is back on the books after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The arguments in court focused on Sheboygan County District Attorney Joel Ermanski's motion to dismiss. Call and attorneys on his side argue a more permissive abortion law passed in 1985 conflicts with the earlier statute and also that the earlier ban is nullified by not being enforced for so long. From our perspective, the plaintiff's lawsuit is unprecedented in Wisconsin history. The plaintiffs, the attorney general, and other state officials and agencies have sued district attorneys, other state officers, over what amounts to a difference of opinion and the plaintiff's own desire to know what the law is. The people need to be able to know before they act what is and is not subject to criminal sanction. It cannot be that Wisconsin law tells the Wisconsin public that the same factual acts are both lawful and illegal at the same time. Here to unpack this complicated case, UW Law School professor Miriam Seifter, and thanks very much for being here. Glad to be with you. So as you listened to these arguments in court, uh, did anything surprise you? There were no major surprises. It was a lengthy, rigorous argument. The judge asked probing questions of both sides. The judge and all of the attorneys were really well prepared. I think if there was a notable feature of the case or of the argument, it was just how much uncertainty surrounds Wisconsin law right now. There were uh, nearly two hours of argument about how this interlocking web of statutes fits together or doesn't. Um, and I think that speaks to um, the level of uncertainty that the state faces right now. There are other states around the country that have settled in one way or the other the legal status of abortion. Uh, but Wisconsin remains in limbo. And you heard the physician's attorney speak to that, saying that physicians in the state are not performing care they were trained to provide not because there's been a court ruling, but actually because there hasn't been one. So given the arguments uh, before the court this week, uh, did they rise to the level of outright dismissing this lawsuit in your mind? Well, def Defendant Ermanski is correct that this doctrine that's called implied repeal um, is pretty disfavored by courts. That means that courts will generally try 
to reconcile and harmonize all the parts of a law and give each one meaning. But the plaintiff's argument is that that can't be done here, as you heard in the clip, that these are just irreconcilable. Um, now, to the extent that the court finds it to be a close case, that would cut in favor of not dismissing the case, because at this stage of the litigation, the case is to be dismissed only if the law is clear-cut against the plaintiffs. Could the judge dismiss the case against the district attorneys and not the doctors? Well, so the doctors are intervening as right. plaintiffs. Right. Um, so the, the question that's pending about the parties is about whether the state plaintiffs are also involved enough in the provision of abortion that they have legal standing to be there. But the defendants would remain in the suit unless the motion to dismiss is granted and the case is dismissed on its merits. Are there legal instances where two statutes can conflict, as in this case, uh, arguably, uh, one older and, and one more recent? There are, and that's a lot of what the parties were uh, debating at the oral argument, which is, um, is this situation close enough to those cases where implied repeal has been found? And that's something that the judge will likely be sorting out um, as she processes the briefs. Now, the judge in this case suggested, I understand, that the 1849 law was feticide, not abortion law. Uh, what would that mean for the lawsuit or abortion law in, in Wisconsin? What the judge and the parties were referring to there is a 1994 Wisconsin Supreme Court opinion that reached that construction of a different section of the same abortion law. So it looked at a relatively similar situation, trying to reconcile newer statutes with older ones, and it said that that earlier statute um, was just limited to this feticide situation of non-consensual abortion. Um, the case is not exactly on point because it wasn't about the section of the statute that's a, at issue here, uh, but that's what the courts, uh, the court and the parties were referring to. Um, and the plaintiff's argument is that that is um, appropriate for the court to follow in this case. So just hearing you speak, this is so incredibly complicated. And as you said at the beginning, this, these aren't the kinds of issues that other states are addressing around abortion law. Um, that's correct. There are a lot of other states in which the question that's been presented to the court is one about a constitutional right to abortion. This case is different because it's on this narrower and more technical issue of how the statute um, should be construed and how all of its provisions should be read together. So uh, did this hearing provide clues as to legal arguments going forward? There were no major new significant developments, I think, at the hearing. Um, the one notable feature was that uh, although there is an argument in the case about disuse, which is that the 1849 provision is no longer enforceable because of a long period of disuse, um, that wasn't really addressed at the hearing. More of the focus was on this doctrine of implied repeal, and the state indicated that if the motion to dismiss is not granted, they'll move forward with the implied repeal argument first. And so as to that disuse uh, of the law, is, is that a thing? Has, has, has that been... Um thrown out before because of that? It's a legal concept that's rooted in ideas about fair notice. So if something really hasn't been enforced for a very, very long time, um, then perhaps it would be unjust or even unconstitutional to just sort of revive it. Um, but it is, uh, like implied repeal, it's not a doctrine that's commonly applied. So in terms of court process and the timeline here, um, would it be your expectation that this uh, will go to the state Supreme Court, and if so, uh, will do so after the newly elected liberal justice Protosewitz is seated? 
I think the case probably will eventually reach the Wisconsin Supreme Court, but it's still at a pretty early stage. There are a number of steps that still need to be gone through at the lower courts, um, so it probably won't uh, reach the Wisconsin Supreme Court in the very near term. All right, Professor Seifter, thanks very much. My pleasure. Turning to education, additional funding for state colleges and universities may reportedly be held hostage by Republicans if the UW system does not agree to eliminate offices related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, a trend being seen nationwide. Now, this news comes the same week a social media video of a UW-Madison student hurling racist slurs has gone viral. Outrage over the students' comments prompted protests on campus and a list of demands from the student-led Black Power Coalition delivered to the office of UW-Madison Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin, including academic accommodations, mental health resources, and expulsion of the student in the video. I would say that a lot of students' initial thoughts were shock, confusion, and pain. Unfortunately, acts like these are not uncommon here, and we decided that this was the time to really band together in order to make these things not continue to be a reoccurrence. Manukin's response condemned the racism in the video and acknowledged concern for the harm caused, but stopped short of disciplinary action, saying, quote, as to the individuals within the racist video, there are numerous legal constraints, both on what we can say and what we can do as a public university. Even though the video is both hateful and harmful, I know that is not what you want to hear, but we are also bound to obey the law. Despite that, more than 50,000 people have signed a petition calling for the student in the racist video to be expelled. Here to talk more about all of this is UW-Madison interim provost, Eric Wilcox. And thanks very much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell us why the university cannot discipline this student. Yeah, it's a great question and one we get a lot. And we have, I know folks are not happy with that answer, but let me point to a couple couple things. One is with federal law, particularly something called FERPA, which I'm sure you're familiar with, we can't speak about an individual case, right? The other thing is we have seen cases after case, and it's really established case law, of instances at a public university where this kind of speech, as abhorrent as it is, as horrible as it is, is protected speech under the First Amendment. Because of that, we are not able to get act on, on this, even though this speech is absolutely abhorrent, because it is protected legal speech under the First Amendment of the country. Black student leaders uh, told us that they were disappointed in the response to the situation by the chancellor, uh, as it didn't feel, they said, like a call to action. Mm -hmm. What's your response to that? I think the, the, the chancellor's communication and response you know, starts out first by she and the entire leadership team are, are deeply, deeply hurt by this. This is abhorrent, right? And we do apologize to the students and, and other members of our community, right, who are offended by this. This is, this is horrible. So staying that, then what is it can, that we can do going forward 
to, to be better. And that's something that we as a campus, I think have been really dedicated to, particularly over the past few years. We've gotten, a, we've moved in a lot of great directions in this space. Um, I wanna to point to the Rebecca M. Center, the Rebecca M. Blank Center that we have. Uh, that is the extension of the public history project that we did last year with, with, with sifting and, and, and reckoning. So we're making steps. We have increased the diversity of the student body overall over the past few years. And I deeply recognize, I've been on this campus 27 years, we have not made great progress in increasing the percentage of, of black students on our campus, and we need to do better, right? And we will continue to work towards doing better. So we are making steps, and the, the students had a, a, in their, their demands, I think a set of issues where we, as campus leadership, really want to sit down and think about how can we how can we move forward on a number of the things that they are interested in. Uh, and that's, I think, the conversation that we have to have going, going forward. You just spoke about the kind of lack of diversity, particularly uh, diversity of black students mm -hmm. uh, on this campus and uh, system-wide. Yep. System-wide, it sits at something like 2.9% of the student Correct. population. So how do you change that? With a lot of hard work. Right. And I think well, some of that hard work has happens on, on our admission side, on our outreach into different communities to recruit students to come to UW-Madison. Part of that is our ability to bring scholarship and other dollars to the table to make to take that financial concern off the table to be able to recruit students. Part of that is what kind of programming do we have? Right? What kind of academic programs do we have that excite students about, about being here? It looks like you're about to jump in. But I, I was going to ask, is part of that the culture? that these students a, find part here. Part of that is the, is the culture, right? And that is, if you've listened to, to Chancellor Mnookin's uh, sort of words over the past few months, particularly in her investiture speech, a clear focus on what she is calling flourishing. And that is that notion that we all belong at UW-Madison, regardless of our race, our gender, our ethnicity, to get that sense of belonging so that we can all flourish here. And that is dealing with that, that cultural piece. How do, we, how do we do that? How do we begin to change minds? And I think one of the things that has emerged over the past 48 hours, and I've seen a lot of email from different academic units on campus, doing a bit of that self-reflection, saying, okay, what is it that we need to be doing within our particular unit to make sure that our climate, our culture, is one that is welcoming and inclusive of, of all. How much does this kind of thing set all of that back? It's, it's a ding. Right, it, it, it's a ding. Right, we will, we it, we will have to. It's a, it's a step backwards. We're going to have to keep charging forward. Right, and I think we're all dedicated to doing that. I know I've been since I've been on campus 27 years. I've been a dean for the last four years. I see within my colleagues across leadership across campus a real commitment and a dedication to not just that the demographics, right? And I think we're all in that sort of an easy thing to say, boy, let's, let's improve our numbers. And we see that happening in the student body. We see that happening in the faculty. But how do we make sure we're changing that culture? Just super quickly yeah. uh, before we go, I wanted to get your reaction to the idea that the Republican legislature would like to eliminate campus diversity offices in return for state funding. Right. I think that's a horrible idea, right? And I think this incident proves the need that we need to focus on making sure our campuses are open and welcoming for everybody. And that requires dedicated professionals who are in these positions who are allowing us to understand what are the best practices. And that's what these roles can, can deliver for our campus and to create the climate that our students are really asking for. All right, Eric Wilcox, thanks very much. Thank you, appreciate it. 
Republicans this week released the details of their plan to increase shared revenue, which would increase funding for local governments by at least 10 percent. It would also ask Milwaukee voters whether to increase the local sales tax by 2 percent in order to pay off debts to the county's pension system. However, the plan also has non-monetary strings attached, like a minimum number of police officers returned to schools in the Milwaukee School District or prohibiting a local government from putting an advisory referendum question on a ballot. Governor Tony Evers said he would veto the plan as it is now in its entirety. For more on the shared revenue plan, we turn to Rob Henkin, president of the research group Wisconsin Policy Forum. And Rob, thanks very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So just when local governments could taste the relief in their shared revenue and in their budgets, a, a possible impasse with the governor's threat of a veto, how far apart are Republicans and the governor uh, now on this plan? So I obviously don't have any inside knowledge, but I will say that unfortunately this is sausage making. Sausage making is not pretty. Uh, I don't think anybody could have reasonably expected that this was going to go completely smoothly. I think uh, from the perspective of local governments, the important thing is that there is solid agreement uh, among leaders of both parties that uh, not only boosting the amount of shared revenue, but tying it permanently to a percentage, in this case, uh, one-fifth of the state sales tax, uh, is is something that they agree on. And that would, will be very important for local governments, both in the uh, immediate funding increase it would provide over the next two-year budget, uh, but also in terms of ensuring that there is some growth in that critical revenue source as state revenue collections grow. How unusual is it to have restrictions like where the money can be spent or not allowing local referendums? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Obviously, state government uh, has a, a great deal of authority uh, in terms of uh, the restrictions it can place on local governments, the parameters it can set for local governments. In the case of counties in particular, counties are really arms of state government. Um, however, you can look at it the other way too, and that is that shared revenue is, is different. Uh, this was a commitment made by state leaders more than 100 years ago when the state was the first in the nation to adopt an income tax. And there was this principle that as the state collected both sales and income taxes and the ability of local governments to do likewise was either eliminated or significantly restricted, that there would be some commitment to sharing those revenues. So putting further restrictions on it uh, arguably does make this a different animal. How hamstrung is the city of Milwaukee, like potentially facing bankruptcy without new money or the ability to raise it? You know, I wouldn't go so, so far as to say bankruptcy, but I would certainly go so far as to say draconian service cuts would have to be adopted in order to fill a budget hole as deep as the one that the city of Milwaukee would face when these federal pandemic relief dollars are exhausted after 2024. Uh, it's, it's roughly 120 to $150 million budget hole in a general purpose budget that is about $650 million. And given the fact that police and fire are more than half of the city of Milwaukee's budget, uh, not only is there no way to avoid position cuts in general, but there is very specifically no way to avoid very deep public safety position and service cuts. And, and really, I think that's the factor that's bringing everybody to the table here. 
Are the politics of resentment, as the book title described, uh, still at play for Republican legislators from rural districts whereby outside voters believe that Milwaukee gets too much money? You know, it, it's a, it, the argument can go both ways. I mean, there's no question when you look at the amount of shared revenue that the city of Milwaukee receives, about $230 million per year, that's a lot of money. Uh, the problem is that we have set up a structure in this state where um, our game plan is to be very restrictive on local governments uh, in terms of the variety of taxes that they can levy on their own in return for committing to give them appropriate state aids and property tax levy authority to allow them to provide critical local services. And so while voters outside of Milwaukee can look at that amount of money and say, boy, that's a lot, and why should we uh, add to that? Um, you can also look at it as that, that this appropriation has not grown for 25 years in nominal terms. And I think the entire state would suffer if the city of Milwaukee is unable to provide the types of core services on which not only its residents, um, but also uh, the, the millions of, of people from outside of the city uh, and the county who visit Milwaukee attractions uh, and so forth every year. With only about a half a minute left, uh, how divergent do you expect the two budgets to be when it comes to big ticket items like K-12 funding? You know, K-12 funding is a huge issue in terms of the dollar amount. Uh, I do think, I, I'm detecting that there's some fundamental agreement that more money needs to be available, particularly for special ed. The question is whether they'll meet in the middle or, as you say, it will remain divergent and this will be one of the issues that potentially drags down everything and, and, and delays the adoption of a budget. All right. Well, Rob Hankin, thank you very much for your expertise. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The annual Day of Immigrant Workers' Rights on May 1st saw demonstrations in Madison and Milwaukee this week, among its goals advocating for driver's licenses for immigrants. Meanwhile, the Republican-led Budget Writing Committee this week axed 545 items from the governor's proposed budget, including driver's licenses for all. There's an estimated 5,000 migrant workers arriving in Wisconsin annually to work farming or food processing jobs. For more, we turn to Tony Gonzalez, director of the American Hispanic Association of Marathon County. And thanks very much for being here. Thank you for having me in your program. So why are driver's licenses so important for the immigrant worker population? Well, it's very important because uh, the bottom line is that even through this pandemic they just experienced, it was those immigrant workers that were out in the fields putting the food on America's table. And, uh, you know, whatever people feel about immigrants, the reality is that they're working, that businesses are knowingly hiring them and uh, needing their labor. And uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have a, a lot of uh, production, uh, and particularly here in North Central Wisconsin, where uh, public transportation is non-existent, just about very limited, and the distances are so great. So uh, it's, it's very important that they get there in a safe way. And also, you know, one thing has to consider the fact that uh, a lot of those immigrants' kids are American-born kids. They go to schools. They need to go to hospitals. They need things, and they need to arrive there in a safe way. So it's a important thing that people do so in a safe way, and that we know that uh, we all want to know that those that are sharing the roads with us are people that have been uh, trained and know how to follow the rules of the road. 
Some critics say that this could lead to fraud or illegal voting. Uh, what's your response to that? Uh, you know, that, that is a narrative that is not true. You know, number one, if something like that happens, you know, you have to blame the people at the polling vote, at the voting polls, because people have to show their ID, and uh, the offer has always been there to make sure that uh, these are going to be uh, ID cards that are very specifically going to say non, not for voting. So they're not real ID compliant, as, as all of IDs have to be. So it, it, it's going to be very clearly marked that they're not able to vote. And I got to add something to that. The population also has no interest in doing that. Their interest is being able to get on the road safely. How's the tide turning on this issue, though, um, between the worker shortage and the promoting public safety? Well, I think we are we are very optimistic that things are changing. The conversation has changed to be more educational, uh, where our legislators understand the need that uh, business owners and the industry needs for the workers, and that uh, safety is something that is. Uh, incredibly big not only just it's not only just about the immigrant undocumented worker but the rest of us that are on the road it's it's very important to know that uh people have insurance that they know how to drive and that we are safe on the roads you said another top issue uh, in your area uh, with not very much time left here to talk is mental health what's the situation well we find ourselves in a very hard situation because there's not enough mental health providers to start with and most importantly there's not uh, mental health providers that speak the language or that have the cultural knowledge so we have to bridge that gap hopefully you know with more professionals that can do that but in the meantime you know the uh, use of people that know the language interpreters that can help bridge that gap is very important here because it is an issue uh, with many of our farmers uh, being away from their families, uh, having to live the way that they have to live in the shadows, and uh, kids also, you know, growing under that environment, it really is a big burden, and, and it's a big need here, mental health, and providers to help with that. All right. Well, Tony Gonzalez, thanks very much. Well, thank you for having me in your program. Pleasure. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.